What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the 90th percentile. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Pajak of Loden Sports. Matt, how are you today? We have a, a different topic. We've finished up on our velocity conversation. We're going to be talking some player development around the world today. Yeah, I don't know if I want to talk about velocity for... <laughs> I'm going to put that, one, put that one on the shelf for a couple of months. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm doing, I'm doing good. Uh, didn't realize I moved to Seattle, but, um, it's been raining for like the past three days straight. So that's been a treat. <laughs> it seems, uh, we got hoodie Jeff on the line today. We do. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been raining here as well for two days. It was crazy. It was like, we had three days of like high eighties, low nineties, so we had that going on Friday. It was kind of the like clash of the of of the two temperatures sort of happening. So then we had like a bad thunderstorm. You know, I'm headed up to see Mick Abel that night. I'm hoping that the weather stays. You got a little bit of a delay when I get to New Hampshire. You know, game doesn't start until seven o'clock. And within that time frame, the temperature went from like 85 degrees to like 65 degrees by the time like the final inning when we were leaving we were all kind of cold you know in the in the bottom uh top of the ninth excuse me and it was just kind of funny how much like the weather flipped you know and then the last two days i've been at uh two kids uh games and then a, a kid's birthday party this morning all that were like light drizzles so um i'm hoodie jeff now because i'm just trying to warm up yeah, we got Keep hoodie Jeff. Cold yeah. front rolls in. Hood goes on. The hood goes on. Hey, happy uh, Johnny DeLuca week. That's right. It is. Johnny DeLuca got the uh, the call to the Dodgers. I know that we uh, we are fans on the show. I know you're probably <laughs> you're probably the preeminent Johnny DeLuca expert, um, besides Johnny DeLuca's <laughs> parents and yeah. uh, friends and family. Um, but yeah, I saw that overnight. He got the uh, the call up to the Dodgers. Was obviously on the forty man roster already. Um, has been performing not only in Double A, but then got the call to Triple A and just continued to hit. So good to see that uh, he's being rewarded. And you know, I know it was uh, Trace Thompson, I believe, that ended up uh, on the IL. So he's replacing him. Let's hope he gets some playing time. I think I had kind of boldly said a few days ago that I thought Deluca. Um, might actually be better than Outman and Thompson now. So maybe we'll get a, a shot to see if that's the case or not. 
Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully Outman turns it around a little bit and levels off. I think he's been the two extremes and he's probably somewhere in between. Um, but yeah, the opportunities there should be really interesting to see uh, what he does this week. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So want to get into the topic or do we have any, any food conversations to have? We, we got well, a decent it's important to say that I, I did not uh, have any black SUVs following me around town this week uh, with the Jimmy John's license plate. So <laughs> I did. Uh, I'm still here. I'm alive and well. <laughs> I did. Uh, I did end up going to Jersey Michaels uh, and referred to it as Jersey Michaels to my wife. And she was like, what? Um, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I went there this week for the kids. Uh, kids had a little uh, picnic on Friday, like an end of year sort of picnic. It was field day, spree day, whatever you want to call it. And so uh, my wife was tied up in meetings. I went to Jersey Michaels and uh, I grabbed subs for myself and my my two youngest and went over there and you know was was the good dad with the cookies and the and the subs and uh you know the root beers and the chips so let me just go. say this the uh the feedback from that last episode uh we had people asking about firehouse so that might have to be a revisited topic if i can find a firehouse um i'll try it out let people know um Encourage you to do the same, Jeff. If they have them, I think they've got them up your way, right? I, you know, I've only seen them like in a mall food court, and I think it was like Burlington, Mass, and I'm nowhere near there. And I'm not even sure if it's open any longer. I want to say that I had a firehouse sub, it had to have been like 10 plus years ago. So it's been long enough that I'm not even certain that I have an opinion on their subs anymore. just got to be fair to firehouse you know just have to be fair so uh they they are currently ungraded until they're, not, they're not graded. <laughs> they're ungraded uh the results of the poll from last week jersey michaels ran away with it 56.3 percent uh as the go-to sandwich jimmy johns came in at 25 percent subway at 18.8 percent and my pick Capriati's. Nobody picked it. <laughs> so all I can say is you're all missing out. They've all they've all not had it. Yeah, we need we need to get these guys some Capriati's. Got to get in the Capriati's bandwagon. That's it. Maybe we can get Capriati's to sponsor the pod. <laughs> yeah, like send us sandwiches. We'll like have a a sandwich getaway contest for one of our listeners. That's where it. Capriati's will will fly them out. To a Capriotis because <laughs> they're barely not near anyone. Yeah. Get a trip to your nearest Capriotis and eat a feast of Subway, Subway, Submarine get sandwiches. Get, get me the biggest hot Bobby you got. <laughs> what happened? What about is, is Blimpy still in existence? I don't even know if Blimpy still exists. It's been a long time since I've seen a Blimpy. It's such a quality name. It is. It's a, it's an excellent name, frankly. Yeah, it says that it's still open, still a thing. Blimpy restaurants, sub sandwiches. I don't. I can't tell you the last time I even saw one. This is. Oh, hold on. I'm gonna. I'm gonna see if there's. I'm. I'm not gonna lie to you. Just went to their website and the sandwiches, the pictures of the sandwiches, not not good. They Bad advertising. 
If if it's Ad if pictures. it's bad on your own website, we're we're in trouble. All right, the closest one to me. Uh, there's, there's one, one in, in Windsor, Connecticut, actually. It, it looks like there's one just north of Salt Lake City. So like, uh, it looks like Ogden has one, and then it looks like there's one up in like Wyoming. <laughs> Those are the two closest. There's, so yeah, there's a couple in. There's actually three in Utah, and zero in the state of Colorado. So yeah, Blimpy, that one's not going to happen for me. Oh, they're advertising pizza subs, and front and center is the spicy Hawaiian. Oh no, Ugh. is this a sub that has? Yeah, it looks like it has like canned diced pineapple on it. Someone shoot down that Blimpy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, That's bad. That's so is, bad. This is this is funny. Yeah. They're Pizza just trying to make their way in the world. All right, we'll stop picking on Blimpy. Yeah, I know. We're going to get like sued by by Blimpy. They have one called the Blimp, though. That seems to have lots of it, it looks like it looks like a more aggressive subway. It's like <laughs> it's Subway's grittier brother. Oh, Blimpy. Back alley subway right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. We're in trouble. Uh, <laughs> We're yeah. totally gonna get sued by Blimpy. I wish anyway, we had <laughs> anyone from Capriotti's a baseball fan listening to this, let us know. And uh we'll get that official sponsorship locked up. Yes, we're 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 locked in with sandwiches here. Um yeah. we're eight we're once again we we kill enough time here. So we're eight minutes into the podcast now, nine minutes into the podcast. We haven't talked about our topic at all, but we're gonna be talking with uh Andrew Rydell of Baseball Australia. He is our national player development manager. Um, and we're going to sort of be talking about some of the different countries throughout the world. I think this is a good year. Uh, somewhat topical still because of the World Baseball Classic. And we got to see a lot of talent from a variety of different countries. Um, it's something that we'll we'll discuss in, in greater detail. It's just there's different development cultures throughout the world. Um, not just with baseball, but a variety of sports and different organizations. So I'm going to sort of tee it up to you as someone who has some firsthand experience in this space. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. And I, I feel like you could go on for days and days and days. I mean, I, I remember a couple of years ago uh, when we were at USA Baseball, we were looking at the medal table for the Olympic Games. And we were looking at the the countries with the highest medal count per capita, which I think is a really interesting way to look at it. Right. And you even go back around that same time. I read a book called talent code and I highly recommend it. Daniel Coyle, highly recommend talent code to anybody who's interested in talent development. Um, And it brings up a whole bunch of different examples of these different small pockets of talent hotbeds. So, I mean, there's, a number of different places in the world where they're doing different things that put them, put whoever they're working with ahead of the curve. Um, I don't think there's like one perfect way to develop talent in any sport. Um, and I think that's kind of the beauty of it. And that's where, when you look at the game on the world stage, whether it's a world baseball classic, or you're looking at the world cup in soccer or whatever it might be, the Olympics is a great example as well. Like it really gives us a peek behind the curtain to like, well, everybody in the world isn't developing athletes for X sport the same way. And here they are all kind of reaching the same apex at the same time. 
and it's splitting hairs as to who's better. So um, I think on like a larger front or a larger scale conversation, you're talking about like, you know, you've always had the argument of like play multiple sports or early sports specialization and early sports specialization clearly works in Latin America and it's worked in leaps and bounds with how many Latin Americans are in the big leagues. Um, but then there's other parts of the country where like you've had athletes that play multiple sports that have gone on to have great success at highest levels of game of whatever game they play, whatever sport mm-hmm. they play. So um, I think if it, you know, to kind of open up this whole conversation is just to say like, there's multiple ways to skin the cat or cut the pie or however you want to say it. Um, trim the turkey. And that is, yeah, trim the turkey, <laughs> make the hot bobby. All right. Uh, <laughs> the The bottom line is, is that that's that's my my viewpoint on it. Is that like if someone's over here saying that like their way is the only way to do it, they're not right because there's more ways to do it. And it's not to say that their way isn't better than the consensus way or whatever, but there are so mm-hmm. many different ways to get an athlete in a sport to the end goal, to success, to whatever it is. Um, and that's, what's endlessly fascinating for me, uh, is kind of diving in and looking at all that. So I think both of us have had a conversation at this point with Travis Bazana, uh, Oregon state's Australian star infielder. Yeah. Um, he's the heartbeat of that team. And, you know, just about an hour and a half ago, hit a home run to put Oregon state ahead of LSU in the regional. Um, so hopefully, you know he continues to have the success that he does, but I think he gave us a little peek behind the curtain into what it's like to grow up in Australia from a baseball standpoint. And Australia is a country that started to have some success on the international stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really fascinating to now bring on Andrew Rydell, who I worked with for a time at USA baseball. Uh, he came up through Australia, played Juco baseball here in the United States. Um, ended up at a D2, I believe, and then yeah. worked at USA Baseball. So he's got a really interesting viewpoint on, you know, baseball development in the United States. He's very familiar with tournament, showcase culture, travel clubs, all of that. Um, but then also Australia, which is an up-and-coming baseball country. So really exciting to kind of peel back the the layers a little bit here and and – get into baseball development in Australia and kind of what the route looks like for a young baseball player over there. Yeah. And I think, um, baseball, you know, outside of probably soccer, and I guess to a lesser extent, maybe hockey, um, is a very, you know, international game and there's definitely national identities, you know? And I think if you watch, any sort of international tournament between any of those sports and have any familiarity, um, you see that there's a variety of different styles, you know, one style obviously, uh, or a conflict of styles. Um, an example that we have is sort of that, that finals and even some of the semifinals between like, you know, team Mexico and what their you know, their style players are like, um, of course, you know, Japan and the United States. And I think that, when you look at pitching development, and now granted the United States didn't have, you know, um, their top stars or whatever you want to say, but, uh, and so maybe we would have seen like a little bit more of a developed style, but um, 
Japan has a very clear style of play. Uh, swings, um, the type of, of mechanics the pitchers have, um, the fact that you have so many guys with a really efficient four-seam fastball and then a splitter of some sort. Um, you know, they're all like super, you know, pronation bias sort of profiles. Um, and I think like Japan's pitching development to me is sort of like, um, you know, Brazil's style of sort of play offensively in like, you know, international soccer or the Russian style of, you know, um, play in, on the international stage in hockey where it's very unique and cultural um to you know those particular uh countries so it's kind of interesting to see how that works and japan in particular is like fascinating in terms of some of the things that they've done um with pitching and the amount of really talented arms they have right now it's, it's more yeah, you want to you want to talk about putting any of those countries that played in the world baseball classic into the blender you just put them up against japan yeah exactly just an entirely different look and especially even on the offensive side like very disciplined on the defensive side, very disciplined. Everything's very disciplined. And when you play a team that's not going to make mistakes, it makes the margin of error really small. And then like to your point, like they're out here throwing a completely different approach from a pitching side at you. And yeah, I don't know. They were entertaining to watch um, on a number of fronts. And honestly, like that's again, what you love about, those opportunities to see the game on the world stage is to be able to see, you know, how the game is viewed differently and players are developed differently. And um, I thought the coolest thing about the whole thing was that Lars Newbar played for Japan first. Uh, what is he? he was the first non-Japan born player to play for the samurai. And yeah. after the tournament, had more Instagram followers than the St. Louis Cardinals account. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which I think just goes to show how important the world baseball classic was to the country of Japan. And, you know, obviously they won it. So, Um, yeah. Anyway, kind of getting off the world baseball classic tangent, and I'm sure we'll get back to it when we actually get Andrew on here. Um I just think that it's really important from a that there are some absolutes and and talent development, skill development, and and one of them is that you need to uh, play a higher level of competition, or the game needs to get harder, or whatever you're doing needs to get harder uh, mm-hmm. for you to get better. And I mean, Jeff, like think of anything that you've done in your life that you've tried to get better at. Like at some point you've gotten really good at a certain level of whatever it is. And then if you don't push yourself into the next level, like you just, you plateau. Right. So like there is a certain level of failure and a certain level of discomfort that has to occur. And I think that there are some really, I think there's some cultures out there that are really good at pushing their younger athletes into that optimal zone of discomfort where they don't get discouraged and Mm -hmm. it, it pushes them through and it breaks them through. And I think that's why it's it's not so easily replicable, right? It's not like you can just go like study how someone does something and be like, okay, we're going to do the same thing. A lot of it's art. Development is such an art. Um, and that's why, you know, like art in music form or art in movie form or art in, you know, paintings or pictures or whatever it is, like you just have to appreciate it. So uh, 
hoodie Jeff and in me over here are out here appreciating cultural development. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm developing my own hoodie culture here in my basement. So <laughs> let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Which had a had tinges of 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 cult there. I don't know what was going on, but yeah, there's, um, there's no cult here. If any, no. <laughs> if the cult <laughs> police are listening. <laughs> We're clean. <laughs> We're, all We're all good. I'm just yeah. I'm just cold in my basement. It's just how it goes. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> all right. Before we we delve into too much more madness, any other topics here? Or should we uh, should we bring Andrew in? Now bring him on. All right. Let's do it. Put him on the soapbox. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, welcome back to the 90th percentile. This is uh, Jeff. I'm obviously here with Matt. Uh, and we're welcoming on our guest. That is the National Player Development Manager for Baseball Australia, Andrew Rydell. Andrew, how are you, man? Welcome to the show. Good to see you guys. Thanks for having me on. appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to uh, – let's, let's dive in a little bit to, you know, obviously baseball there in Australia, a little background. I mean, I think – most of us that are listening to this podcast are familiar with, of course, Liam Hendricks, Curtis Mead. Uh, we are a prospect-centric site. And uh, actually, Travis Bizana has been a guest on this show previously. I know Matt's spoken with him as well. Um, so there's a lot going on right now. You're coming off you know, good showing in the WBC. You guys made the quarterfinals. Unfortunately, lost to Cuba. Um, but did you know advance as a runner-up in Pool B. Um, what are your duties over there and sort of what, what led you here? Uh, yeah, I think, first of all, um, I, I went over to play college myself. Um, I left uh, out of high school from here in Australia and went over and played uh, junior college for two years and then at a D2 in Nebraska for two years. Um, and then I actually interned at USA Baseball with Matt. That's how we uh, met each other. So that was kind of my journey over there. And then um, being able to then come back to Australia, um, I would say 50% of the job is kind of overseeing uh, and helping out with most of the national junior squads, so 12U, 15U, 18U, um, and then also kind of some roster management stuff for the 23U World Cup. And then also the other part of my job is helping kids get to college. So 
I think that's probably the biggest thing that we've been able to do since I've come home uh, since COVID started in 2020. That's the that's the one big thing that we kind of came back and said this is really where we want to tap into. Uh, we had a lot of guys that were signing early. Obviously, the international signing age is 16. So we had guys that were signing early. They were signing at 16. They were going over playing a year in the complex league, and then they were getting into low A or high A. And then by the time they were 19 or 20, they were getting released. So they just hadn't had the at-bats. They hadn't had the innings on the mound and things like that to be able to hang for a long period of time in, uh, in full-season ball over there in, the, in, in Pro Bowl. So we kind of turned our attention more to the college side of things to extend guys' career. Um, we, we knew as a country we mature a lot later. So we really wanted to tap into, okay, what does our player look like when they get to 22 instead of at 16 when they were signing their pro contract? So as you touched on some names there, um, we, we've had success through both signing pro at 16 that have been able to maintain a career and, and get to the big leagues and things like that. And then now we're also seeing the flip side of that, of guys extending their career, going to college for three or four years. Travis Pizzano is obviously the big one at the moment that's going to get taken in the draft next year, um, who turned down some money as a 16-year-old to, to sign pro to then be able to go to Oregon State and really do what he's been able to do so far. Um, there's a there's a, a bunch of other guys at the moment. We were just talking off air about Jared Jared Belbin, who's at Campbell at the moment. He's a guy that didn't have any pro interest out of Australia. He went to junior college for two years, Arizona Western, and then he's transferred to Campbell. Um, obviously, he was up the middle last year with Zach Neto, who we've been able to see what he's done. But now seeing him at Campbell as as a senior, really um, torched the ball and, and hit leadoff and things like that. He probably wouldn't have had the career or been in baseball still if he had signed pro out out of Australia at 16 because he may have been out of the game by 19 or 20. So I think that's really we've we've turned our focus to extending guys' career and then obviously filtering back into Team Australia. Um, as you touched on the success that we had at the WBC, that was our our furthest uh, that we've gotten in in the tournament. And yeah, one day we'll get over Cuba in one run games, but that's a story for another day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it was a great showing, and obviously uh, there's a lot of talent, you know, coming down the pipeline now. Um, what does a typical sort of calendar year um, look like for, you know, a young baseball player in Australia? Yeah, we have our seasons kind of split into two. So, obviously, the, the seasons are backflipped to you guys. So, our summer is through December, January, February. Um, obviously, the guys are on the field a lot. So, that's that's the main season that we kind of have over here. And it's um, probably a, a problem for us because it's the opposite to you guys. So, guys that do want to get seen by college uh, coaches, scouts, and things like that, they want to go and travel to America and play in tournaments. Most of those are in your summer. Um, so I think it's trying to uh, really manufacture what we can do in our hot season over here to get on the field, to get our reps in. Um, we have our national championship for 16U and 18U every January. And then that's where they pick the, the state teams. Each state picks their top 20. And then we go to one location and they play against each other um, to crown a national champion. They then go back to their states and they go back to their summer seasons, which is all club level stuff. Um, it's not travel ball or anything like that. It's just club level. They play, most states play once during the week and then once on a Sunday. So they're really only getting two games a week through the Sunday. Um, guys will take some time off. They may get off a mound and things like that for a couple of months. And then they start ramping back up again because our big events each year, uh, the under 18 world cup is every two years. Um, and that's in September. So after our national championships in January, then we have a big layoff, uh, before the world cup in September. So guys will take a few months off and then start to ramp back up through June and July. 
uh, make sure they're getting innings in July and August and then getting ready for the World Cup in September from an 18U perspective. Um, and then the 15U World Cup is obviously in the, the opposite years to the 18U. So it just kind of flip-flops between the different age groups and what we're trying to do. No, that's uh, – yeah, I mean, it's it sounds wildly different than what guys are experiencing here in the States because I didn't even really think about that, Jeff. I don't know about you coming into this conversation about how the seasons are flipped, but that's a really interesting nugget, um, which kind of lends itself a little bit to playing baseball year-round. It kind of has a little bit of a California effect to it. Um, but I think that also kind of leads into this next question I want to ask you. And I don't know what your thoughts are specifically on this and if you could kind of give us some insights into – what it's like in Australia is early sports specialization prevalent. Um, obviously in Latin America, that's the model. Um, and here in the United States, it's a mixed bag. There's people who argue for multi-sport people who, you know, have had a lot of success with, with early sports specialization. So um, yeah, give us some, you know, insight into kind of what that looks like in Australia. Yeah, I think it's um, and it's obviously a big topic for us being a smaller sport compared to the population down here in Australia. I would say baseball ranks anywhere from 13 to 18th in the country in, in kind of population growth and percentage of what the athletes play. Um, obviously, being a country where rugby and swimming and cricket, tennis, soccer, all these other sports are in front of baseball. So we do have a lot of athletes who do play multiple sports. Um, I think we've seen success with guys who have specialized in baseball at an early age, but we see a lot of guys that have success playing different sports. They may do that through the winter and then they may come back to baseball in the summer. And obviously it just keeps them athletic. It keeps them in different movement paths and things like that throughout the year. Um, obviously some of the sports down here are really physical. We're playing rugby without pads and helmets and things like that. So I think from that perspective, it's a totally different lens on what we're doing to kind of guys over there. Um, I would say basketball is, is obviously rising. There's, there's more guys that are making it to the NBA and things like that, uh, basketball-wise in Australia. But I think a lot of our athletes, from the perspective of their body types and things like that, if we're looking at a long-rangey, flexible starting pitcher, for example, the AFL is, is a sport that would be all over them, or basketball or something like that, to try and take them away from what we're trying to do. So. I think it's a it's a juggling act for our coaches trying to management workload from a baseball perspective, but then also, hey, I've got rugby training Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I play a game on a Saturday, but then I'm going to try and back up for a baseball game on a Sunday. That's a real difficult task for a 14-year-old. So I think from that perspective, I, like you said, I don't really have an opinion either way. I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, and I think each athlete is going to be different in what they face coming through that, especially in a landscape where it is warm a lot of the time throughout the year. So guys want to be out on a field. They want to be in a pool. They want to be out doing a lot of different things. Um, and obviously, our athlete management workload is, is a big topic. So I think um, to answer your question, I probably haven't done a good job of that, but I don't really have an opinion either way. Um, I think we see, we see guys sign pro at 16 who were great rugby players. And then we've also seen really great baseball players that have turned down the chance of signing pro to go and play in the AFL or play rugby league or something like that. So it's an uphill battle that we always face trying to get the best, best athletes to play baseball. Yeah. And I kind of want to hop in here from a couple of different angles. I think one of them is like an ignition piece a little bit. And, and I know that I kind of had this in the notes coming in about how important players like Liam Hendricks and Travis Bazana and Curtis Mead are in terms of drawing it sounds like there's a million different options and it sounds like, you know, kids in Australia play everything. Like 
you know, there's you think about basketball, like kids want to play basketball because once upon a time it was they wanted to be Michael Jordan and then they wanted to be Kobe and then they wanted to be LeBron. And I think that's like a huge draw as a kid to what sport you play is kind of like what you look up to. So um, have you noticed an impact from, you know, whether it's Hendrix or, you know, some of these other younger guys coming up, you know, having an impact on the younger level to draw them towards baseball and maybe away from specializing in a different sport as they get older. Yeah, I think we've seen that more, especially after the WBC this year. I think the really good thing about Team Australia is a lot of the guys that were on that team aren't pros. It's not their it's not their job is to play baseball. So a lot of them come back into their cities around Australia and they're their local coaches. So we had guys that were playing for Team Australia at the WBC and they come back and now they're coaching the 16 U team down the road at the park on a weekend. So then now they've really seen guys, hey, I can make this a career. I've seen my coach who's who's helping me out throughout the week. He's now pitching in the Tokyo Dome in front of 60,000 against Shohei Otani. So I think from that perspective, it's, it's obviously going to start filtering down. Um, like you said, you had Travis on here. Travis was a really good cricket player, um, and, and he went down the path of playing baseball, which is obviously going to work out really well for him. But I think from that perspective at a younger age of um, the Little League World Series is obviously the big thing that starts our journey. Um, we have direct entry to the Little League World Series every year. We don't have to qualify like the teams in the U.S. do. So once you win the national championship here, you get to go to the Little League World Series. We see a lot of guys filter through that Little League uh, World Series into the next phase of baseball. Um, and then they continue to carry that on as, as they get older. And I think the more success that we have, whether it's individual players, like you said, Liam Hendricks is huge. Um, Travis getting drafted next year, hopefully in the first round, is going to be massive for us as well. And guys can really start to see their path based on what guys have done previously. Now, whether that's like we touched on before, pro or college, I think the more guys that we have signed and the more guys that we have move up systems and things like that from either route – now they've, they've got two journeys that they can go on and whether they're the best player in the country at 16 or whether they're a tier below and can get to junior college, now there's different routes that they can kind of navigate. Um, some of them may be getting an education and a degree and the other may be if there's money on the line as a 16-year-old kind of going down that path as well. Yeah, I'm interested a little bit more about, you know, after that Little League World Series uh, sort of uh, period, um, what is the next phase? I mean, is it like travel ball? I know that we obviously have a few different options here. Um, sort of what is the structure like there? Yeah, I think it's something that's that's ever changing, and it's something that we're trying to do a better job of. I think, um, obviously, as a federation and an organization, is to try and have those. Uh, different pathways from a 14U age group would be the next kind of step up. Uh, we used to have 14U national championships, which they went away from um, before I came home. But it's something that that age group, I think, was kind of missed during COVID. Um, we saw that obviously last year at the Under-18 World Cup and the lack of games and things like that that guys had played. But now with the with coming off the back end of COVID and guys being able to get back on a field, I think it's really important that that 14-year age group uh, really sets the fundamentals of what we're trying to do moving forward. Um, and it's something that we're, we're looking to really build up. So we're diving in at the moment on what a 14-year kind of, not event, but kind of having uh, more game times and more on field and things like that in the age group. And like going back to the point around keeping guys in the game and not getting affected by other sports, I think if we can do that at a younger age, have a better product to give them um, as 13 or 14-year-olds, they're going to want to play more. Then it kind of leads into guys wanting to get overseas and play in the summer in, in America. 
Um, I think obviously the rule change now from a Division One perspective of being able to commit and things like that, uh, before it was getting into ridiculous territory, seventh, eight, seventh grade, eighth grade, et cetera. Um, and now that it's back down to being a junior and things like that, it gives our guys more time to get their fundamentals and their skills built in Australia before they then want to take their talents to the US, go and play a summer as a junior or go and play in some tournaments, whether it be travel ball or um, we'll, we'll obviously run national teams. We'll take them over in the off year of the World Cups. Um, so whenever there's not an 18U World Cup, we'll then look to take teams over and play in tournaments over there through the summer to then get in front of college coaches. So I think the more that we can do as a younger age to keep them involved and keep them in the game, something that we're looking to do, and then obviously filter them into American summers to then try and get to college if they don't end up signing pro. Yeah, and I want to hop in here uh, and try and tie in a whole bunch of different things that you've mentioned. You mentioned it earlier on when you said that you know Australians are typically later uh, maturing, and I think you mean later maturing in the game. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you talked about you know we talked we each individually have talked to Travis about his experience and how he played every sport under the sun. And you just mentioned it; he played cricket. He was a really good cricket player, and I'm sure he was excellent at everything else he did. You also talked about how baseball isn't really a top priority in terms of popularity in the country and how, you know, it's Australian rules, football and rugby and um, basketball that are kind of taking precedent in, in that, from that standpoint, I'm a huge believer that um, getting a lot of at bats at an early age is a catalyst for what we saw when we were at USA baseball. Right. So for the listeners, you know, Andrew did a year at USA baseball with me, um, with you, when you look at the 12 U and the 15 U national teams, it's a lot of those kids were early sports specialization, you know, athletes, right? So, um, a lot of competitive at bats means their games polished, they get selected for the national teams. And then mm-hmm. those are the kids at those premier events, air quotes, cause if you can't see me, right? Like those are the kids that are getting early committed to power five schools, right? And that's not going to happen anymore. So I think there's like a bunch of really interesting things like you touched on before, like trying to push Australian baseball players to college in that route. I think that's really smart because I think that gets them into a place in baseball that isn't quite a jump all the way to professional baseball and they can get more competitive at bats. They can continue to develop and then they can get to that level instead of it being too difficult, I guess you could say. Um, but then also the new rules with the NCAA really play into that where, you know, now you can't commit the 14 year old kid from California who's played on the 12 U national team for two years and is only there because of early sports specialization. So I don't know. I think all of it is really fascinating and it kind of lends itself to a really exciting time in Australian baseball. Um, love what you guys are doing in terms of, you know, I guess acknowledging all of that and then, you know, creating those opportunities for those guys to come over stateside and, and kind of show what they got. So um, talk about that a little bit, I guess, like 17, 18 year olds and kind of their pathway to the States. Um, I know that when you came over here, you went to a Juco. I know that that's kind of popular. Um, you know, how, how do you get players, I guess, from Australia to college commitment, whether it's a two year or a four year over here in the States? 
Yeah, I think obviously um, junior college is the route that most of our players do take. There's probably a couple of reasons of that that you've kind of touched on there. The first one is the at-bat side of things. So as hitters, um, getting, going to a junior college gives them more at-bats straight away. And I think being able to get those at-bats as a freshman or a sophomore kind of set them up for their career long-term in college. Um, obviously, you have guys, Travis Bazana is an exception. Jimmy Nadai is at Stanford at the moment. He's going to play third base next year as a sophomore. So some of those guys are exceptions. Um, and they were the ones that were turning down money from pro clubs out here. So they were more advanced and further down the track than, than some of our players here. They turned down, um, I mean, a lot of the time, it's guys that turn down six figures in international signing bonus that then go to college that are then playing as freshmen and sophomores at a Division One Power Five. Now, outside of that, like you said, guys being behind at bats-wise and things like that, I think it's just from a volume of how much we play. Um, obviously you guys go into your summer and you might go and play 50 or 60 games in a travel ball season or something like that. That's our winter. So while you guys are doing that, we're out building, we're in a gym, we're doing things off the field in our winter. We may play once or twice a week. That's just how our kind of seasons are set up down here. Um, and I think a lot more of it over there is revolved around the sport and, and being able to specialize in the sport at a young age to then, like you said, make those national teams get committed early, et cetera. Um, and it's something that I think down here, like you said, multiple sports happen. Um, academics is obviously a, a huge part of what we're doing as well. I think in, in the country as a whole, we do a really good job academically. So I know that that's a huge focus for guys as well. Um, those guys who did get to an age when they were soph sophomores or juniors here in Australia, we have to pick electives academically. So we get to pick our own classes, what we take in as juniors and seniors. And some guys, they may not be there yet from a baseball level. So they may just take classes that they're interested in. Then their baseball might come along. And then when they get to their senior year, they may have some division one interest, but because they haven't taken all the courses and all the NCAA classes in year 11 and 12 or in their junior and senior year, now they're only eligible to go to a junior college. So I think from that perspective, coming back in 2020, the biggest thing that I wanted to drive home was how important the academics affects going to college and what choosing the right classes does for your baseball career. Um, obviously, Travis and Jimmy and those guys were able to really do that and set that up. Uh, we had some guys that um, I took over to Arizona. We go on an, an MLB Arizona Fall Classic trip every year. Um, we took some guys over there. They had Division One interest, but they were seniors and they hadn't chosen the right electives. So then we had to pivot. Guys started getting to junior colleges, and now we're seeing that two years down the track. We've had a few, a bunch of guys at the moment now that are committing to Division Ones that were on that trip, that, but they had to go in, and, and apply their trade at a junior college for two years. So I think either path kind of works. Um, Obviously, the the example that I used before was Jimmy Nada. He's at Stanford. Um, a degree from Stanford is a degree from Stanford. So that's a it's it's a whole lot different ball game than going to a junior college and getting at bats as a freshman. And he understood that going in. Hey, I'm going to sit behind Tommy Troy, and I'm going to sit sit behind guys that are already going to be in the lineup. But at the end of the day, I'm going to get a degree from Stanford, and hopefully, I can then start as a sophomore to then get my couple of years um, baseball wise to see if I can get drafted afterwards. Now, Travis obviously was a different uh, route in, in particular. He played summer ball for Corvallis Knights before he then went to Oregon State. He torched the summer league. He got his at-bats all of that summer before he showed up in the fall at Oregon State. And he won a starting job because of the at-bats he had in that summer and in his lead-up preparation. And you've had him on. You know what type of, type of kid he is. The, the preparation that he does kind of set him up for that. 
Uh, the guys in Australia that may be behind from an at-bats perspective or an innings perspective, getting them to junior college, like we said, enables them to get in and get those at-bats for two years. Um, I just We just posted an article yesterday online about some of our guys that have gone to junior college. They've made all-conference, all-region teams now, and they're seeing the fruits of that of getting their at-bats and their innings in because we've now had 15 guys who were all-conference recently. We had an MVP down there in Texas, junior college. We had five guys hit over 15 home runs in a college season. One of them hit 23 homers down in Texas. Now, we didn't see that at all in Australia. We knew that those guys had the bat-to-ball skills, and that's what got them to college. But now being in a gym and getting the at-bats and things like that, those singles and doubles are now getting hit out of the yard, and that's what then gets them drafted down the track and gets them to Division ones. Sure. And I think, you know, again, you touched on a couple different things, and I want to bounce back to Travis here for a second. This is kind of, you know, maybe how we wrap it up, but um, competitive at-bats, right? First off, the, the academic dynamic wasn't even something that I thought about. Right. So I think that's really yeah. interesting um, that, you know, guys are graduating high school and not having the credits necessary to get into a four year over stateside. So it's something that you have to be, you know, extra diligent about, I guess, while you're in high school to make sure that you're even eligible. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, but talking about Travis and in, in the competitive at bats. Right. So you talked about his time with the Corvallis Knights. He talked to us about, you know, his experience you know, playing against grown men back in Australia. And I guess my question for you is, you know, you we talk about getting those competitive at bats in JUCO and in college and, you know, and Travis kind of manifested it for himself. Right. So like he went to the opportunities, he sought out the opportunities. Are there any plans, I guess, in the next couple of years from your end to potentially create more opportunities for competitive at bats over in Australia? Um, does that involve the Arizona baseball league or not the Arizona, the Australian baseball league, or does that involve potentially something else that, you know, might not be as daunting as facing grown ass men at 15. Yeah. And it's funny, like you say that there facing, facing grown men and as being daunting and things like that, as soon as you get out of 15, 16 here, you're straight into it. You're, if you, if you can swing a bat and you can throw the ball, you're straight in with grown men from when you're 15 or 16. I think that is something that we do have an advantage of over there. You touched on some of the premier events and things like that. The guys go to over there, but they're up against guys their own age. Over here, when you get out of 14U and you're into 16U, and then especially when you turn 16, it's then a grading club system. So if you're in the top, whatever it may be, 9 or 12 in that club that you're in, you're playing A grade. You're playing first grade for that club every week. Now, that same club may have the first grade team and their second best player, he might be 35 years old and just work a nine to five and then he's come back from college and he still rolls around and plays ball so from that perspective it may be daunting as a 14 or 15 year old to play against grown men but that's what our kids do every week so i think we learn the game differently because we're playing with men we learn how to play the game we learn what to do and what not to do we learn what to not say and what to say there's a a bunch of different things that i think playing with 25 to 35 year old men as a 15 year old really teaches you um travis obviously was a huge part of that he was playing a grade or first grade for his club down there in sydney since he was 15 years old so there were guys that were rolling back in from college they may have finished at a grand canyon or an arizona state or whatever it may be they're 23 and they come back well travis is facing them as a 15 year old so for him those competitive at bats started as a really young age 
Um, our guys that do come through the system are in our national program and things like that. Most of them are playing first grade twice a week. Uh, they're facing, like we said, between anywhere from 20 to 35, 36-year-olds. And then they come back to the under-18 level at a national camp or to go to a World Cup. They know how to play the game. They know the little things. They know what goes on in a dugout. They know how to travel, etc. be around a clubhouse. Um, that's something that I think we do really do a good job of. Um, and like you touched on the ABL, obviously with the rules of going to college and things like that, we can play in the ABL until we leave for school because we finish school over here in the October or the November, and then we don't go until the next fall. So we essentially finish our senior year, a calendar year before you guys do. And then the ABL being from uh, November until February, our guys can go and now play in the ABL if they're good enough. Now, I think obviously with Australia doing better at the WBC and the, and the, the level of the ABL rising, it's continuing to become more difficult to get the at-bats and the innings in the ABL. But Travis obviously was able to do that in that summer. He played for the Sydney Blue Sox. He got the at-bats through the summer before he then went and played at the Corvallis Knight. So now he's 500 at-bats ahead of where he would have been if that alternative route wasn't, um, I guess, wasn't an avenue for him. There's now guys that are coming back, high A, double A, triple A hitters and arms that are playing in the ABL. Man, you could be a 16-year-old kid in Australia, and now you're facing a triple-A arm that has come to get more innings in the offseason, or he may not have had that many uh, ABs throughout the year. So we've seen in the last couple of years now, especially after COVID, 16- and 17-year-old players, Australian local players, getting the chance to play in the ABL um, against some guys that have come out and really been able to be in a clubhouse with a – Peter Moylan, for example, is the Melbourne Aces manager. If you're 15 or 16 years old and you get to be in a clubhouse with Peter Moylan for the whole summer, for three, four-month season, you're not going to do anything but learn how to be a big leaguer, how to, how to get your at-bats in, how to get ready to come out of the pen, etc. Now, when I'm a 17-year-old, I bring that back to the under-18 national team. Now I can help the other guys get further along because I've been around that environment. So just kind of festers down, and I think the more that we can do a better job of becoming better players at a younger age, the more guys we can push into the ABL to then get those at-bats and get those innings. And you know, Jeff, back here stateside, we make a big deal out of it when Bryce Terang and Bobby Witt perform against upperclassmen during the summer. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Big deal, right? Half the half the world away. There's there's 15 year olds playing with 36 year old men. It's, it's remarkable. Um, Matt, were there any other questions that you wanted to uh, send a Andrew's way, or do you want to sort of wrap this up now? No, I think we can wrap it up. I think uh, Andrew's staring down lunchtime over there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's a day and a half in the future from us. So <laughs> that was Monday look. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, 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 let, I'll let you know how I was looking outside and get you a heads up for tomorrow. Yeah, there this we go. This podcast will be released on Monday morning here, and it still will be earlier than it is right there as you're recording it. So it's not bad to have someone from the future, I suppose. But corny jokes aside, uh, Andrew, thank you for joining us here on the 90th percentile. For Jeff, for Matt, uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody.